0: hey everyone welcome back to fitness devil podcast for episode 130. Uh, we managed to pull off getting krista scott dixon of precision nutrition today for you all so she's a, a guest that i really wanted to get on here for a long time and it's one of our best episodes we've ever recorded so i really hope you love it we talk about add and modern technology and how that has can have an effect on everyday lives and nutrition we get into traditional versus non-traditional education, PN being a non-traditional route versus academia, and the values of both. The importance of connecting as a human being for coaching, and how Krista's uh, experience PN has made her and the other executives in there uh, unemployable in traditional workplaces. Exactly what she means by that statement. Hopefully, you love this one.
1: Shut up and sit down.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, we've got a really special guest on here today, somebody I've uh, followed for a while. I've listened to her on podcasts uh, numerous times in the past, and uh, I'm just really excited about it. So we have Krista Scott Dixon, who's a bit of a legend in the, certainly in the nutrition realm, uh, and she's one of the key executives and chief architects and educators at Precision Nutrition, um, which is a certification that both Dean and I hold. Uh, and... These guys are, well, actually, I should say, Krista, you are one of the architects behind the, the foundation of habit-based nutrition that PN has built a reputation for. So, and PN is the largest nutrition company, coaching company in the world. It's the largest nutrition certification company. And uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Wow, what a great intro. I, I like the term legend. I feel like I should get a t-shirt with legend.
2: Well, across only in list. nutrition, though. Nothing <laughs>
1: else. It's <laughs> a very specific <laughs> niche legend. <laughs>
2: Well, usually, I'll make fun of Andrew for like, because it's, it's always like usually good intros, but then I'll always pick up the heart the fact that you'll, like, you're only good here. Like, don't That's <laughs> well,
1: right. Don't get too uppity. It,
2: yeah. When, when we, if anybody has paid any attention to, to
0: PN and what you guys have done, there really are three names that, uh, you know, I certainly see. I know there's going to be other people involved as well, but there's three names that have had a lot of influence. And when you hear one of the three of you speak, you tend to shut up and listen. And it's yourself, Brian St. Pierre, and of course, John Berardi, who is the original founder, right? So, you guys have been doing good work for a long time. So, when it was actually a, a PN representative, one of your guys' people, uh, Jason Crow, who reached out to me to want to uh, you know, have a relationship and feature some of your people. We're going to have uh, Adam Fight and Craig Weller come up in the very near future. I'm looking forward to talking to those guys. And we want to showcase PN because PN is a company that I think has been doing exceptional work, it represents good stuff and like for a very long time would always asked the guests about what books they were reading it was a book list published like in an article by pn that got me really started many years ago uh the book switch and there's a few others on that list i think motivational interviewing was on that list there's a couple other ones and that that book switch was the one that really turned me on to consuming a lot
2: more books <laughs> no, so, it, it turned, it, it's been influential it turned, in my career you use like the exact metaphor. Like it's, it, it, it to switch. Sorry, I don't even think he planned that. So. I totally did. That was deliberate. But anyway, so what we want to bring this back to is, uh, you
0: know, what have you been focused on in your more recent work, and both with your personal brand and through PN? Well,
1: I'll start with what we're doing at PN now that I think we're really excited about, which is that uh, in the past, the curriculum... That was produced out of Precision Nutrition, whether that was, you know, for our clients transforming their bodies or our coaches getting educated was mostly just me. So in the beginning, of course, we were a startup. I mean, in the beginning, it was two guys. It was John Berardi and Phil Caravaggio literally working in John's basement. So like that's how we began. And then we started building curriculum and for a really, really long time. I was it, like I was the only person generating this. So clearly there's like a limited capacity and a limited scope that I can do. And so just recently, we've actually started to construct a curriculum team. And you mentioned Adam Fite, we've got Craig Weller, we've got uh, Helen Coleus, who's a PhD in molecular biology. Uh, You know, we have some other data people, we have other coaches, like it's, it's quite a significant group, uh, which is awesome, because it dramatically improves the breadth of perspective that we can bring but also the amount that we can produce in a relatively shorter time so we're kind of ratcheting up our game a little bit and thinking about okay so we have this certification for coaches and that's kind of like your introduction to coaching right like it's almost like your undergraduate course in nutrition and coaching but a lot of people do our certification and come back to us and say okay cool i got everything you included in there But I coach this particular population. I coach athletes or a lot of clients are coming to me with questions about plant based eating or eating uh, around pregnancy or menopause or whatever. Right. And so we're like, you know, we should really think bigger than this and start to conceptualize ourselves as a much broader provider of education for coaches. And again, like kind of keeping that formula of like the science of nutrition and the art of coaching. So coming up in 2020, we're super excited about starting to release more educational products that are aimed at coaches, um, as well as tools to help them do their job. Because I think one of the big divisions between what we do and what a lot of traditional education providers do is we don't just give you information. We give you information and say, okay, here's how to apply it. In your real life like really you know on the ground super real life tuesday at three o'clock you're sitting across from marge who's 57 you know has this particular roster of health issues how to coach that in that situation and then also tools like building tools that you can use so we just uh, brian st pierre just created this macro and portions calculator so it does this incredibly super detailed math and you just plug in all your numbers and it spits out like a hand-based portion size conversion for you Uh, Like it does all these awesome things. And so knowledge application tools are sort of the direction that we're going to help coaches like build and build and build foundations. So I don't want to start to say that we're going to create a PN university (laughs) in the next decade, but that's kind of the direction we're going. So that's what I'm personally really excited about or professionally really excited about. And then personally, for me, what I'm very interested in lately is the crossover between other. I would call them like psychosocial stuff in people's lives, uh, whether that's uh, ADD or addictions or what people call codependency or caregiving or whatever, and how that manifests in their health and fitness behaviors. So I think it's really easy if you're a coach to have a client come in and they're doing stuff, and you're like, "Why are they doing this stuff? Why are they doing this illogical, paradoxical stuff? Why are they making bad decisions and so on?" And I've really gotten interested lately in in looking at how there are all these other dimensions in the way that people think, in the way they feel, in the way they behave, and how that shapes their health and fitness choices. So, I mean, one example is the role of ADHD. I, I, like, a few years ago, (laughs) when I was briefly went back to grad school for counseling, I, I was interested in the problem of attention, which I think all of us in 2020 grapple with attention. How do I keep my attention on a task? How do I not get distracted? So just for fun, I took uh, the clinical test for ADHD and I scored off the charts and I was like, whoa, (laughs) how did I find this out in my mid-40s? I mean, it explains so much of like my childhood and stuff, right? Um, So that was a real revelation and I started learning a lot more about it and it, it presents differently in adults, it presents differently in women than men and there's lots of individual differences, but... I'm starting to see it in my clients. I'm like, oh my gosh, you struggle with planning. You struggle with impulsivity. You struggle with distractions. You struggle with all these kinds of things. Then you have all this anxiety and shame around it. So, you know, I'm just super interested in how all this stuff is happening under the surface with our clients. And then if you just focus on how many cups of whatever they're eating, you're missing so many opportunities for really effective coaching.
0: There's like a million things that, you just said that I like what a jump on. We just had our friend Jeb Johnston. He's uh so, him and Dean are both coaches at Stronger U. I think you're probably familiar. Mm-hmm. With him. Yep, yep. Uh, anyway, so he's big on a lot of, we're talking about mindset stuff and how it's so much more than just the, the math and numbers. And um, we're not sure which order we're going to air these episodes in, but anybody who listens to that has probably enjoy this conversation. But I actually thought the ADD comment to what degree do you think? the world the way it is now with electronic devices and how that's changing you're saying you scored a certain way i wonder how many people who you know have this device addiction i think most of us to some degree we deal with and they shorten attention span i think that's more of a systemic societal thing now like i wonder how well most people would actually score on this but more importantly what do you think what do you think the effect that is having on people's success with nutrition let's go there first
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's having a huge impact, and I think there's lots of layers to it. I think that it's easy to say, oh, it's the devices, the devices are to blame, right? Let's let's just do a phone-free day, and let's just do a digital detox, and it's gonna fix everything. And that's a little bit of a simplistic argument. I mean, the people that are in favor of digital minimalism like Cal Newport, aren't saying that, right? I love Cal Newport's work, by the way. He's like the sanest person. (laughs) He's so reasonable, Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think you know, the, the devices are, are part of a larger systemic phenomenon, and um, Nir Eyal, who's just put out this book called Indistractable, which is terrific, talks about how the problem is not really so much the devices, it's the human uh, distaste for discomfort and the human desire to not be uncomfortable, right? Um, And so previously, we simply didn't have that many opportunities to not be uncomfortable. I mean, human existence for almost like 99.9% of it, and still for many people today, is deeply uncomfortable. It's just uncomfortable to be alive. But now we just have a lot of ways to uh, medicate ourselves around that. Uh, So I don't think the devices are to, to blame, but they certainly, you know, facilitated and they are designed specifically to amplify the worst tendencies of human cognition right distraction uh, addictive type behaviors reward seeking fragmented attention all that kind of stuff so it's not a mistake that all of us you know in 2020 in industrialized countries struggle with this um but i think it's a it's a deeper issue than that for sure and they
2: make it so easy like cal newport talks about it but it's like these app companies and these phones, like they're building stuff to like attend to that dopamine drip and like all of us as humans, it's not the wrong choice. Like it's the right choice. We want to like feed that. And so they just know that and they're gaming the system, which is like, it's not the cell phones. It's our need to kind of fill that space or that desire for dopamine, so to speak. And they're just giving it to us. So easy.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Or even things like the human need for connection, right? And I think one of the dangerous aspects, maybe not dangerous, but problematic aspects of of technology is that it it does purport to fill a need that it cannot, right? So if I feel lonely, like if I have a genuine human need for social connection, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go on Facebook. And and like, I'm not consciously thinking I'm lonely, I'm going to go on Facebook, but I find myself on Facebook or social media or whatever, cruising for social connection and some kind of interaction. Ultimately, I'm not going to have any social interaction that truly is fulfilling. It's not going to meet that need. Um, Like I could probably walk to the Starbucks, talk to the barista for five minutes and get a better hit of social fulfillment than that. But so, I mean, they really do hijack not just our reward system, but like fundamental deep human needs, security, safety, human connection, novelty challenge, like all these things. So they are are very very uh tricky things and as you say like they are deliberately designed that way like there's teams of cognitive psychologists getting their phd in how to make apps that suck your mind (laughs) down the drain
2: where so like this is cool because like this is pretty top of your mind but especially because you work with coaches where does that this play in with the conundrum of like i guess we'll call it fat loss but like getting results out of clients like where i guess where you start with dealing with these behaviors and habits to like get what you want, so to speak.
1: Yes. Yes. And you asked earlier about health and fitness choices. I didn't quite get there. So I'm glad you kind of circled me back around, but I mean, I think there's different aspects to how these things can interfere. So one of them is that very simply clients are wasting a momentous amount of time on these activities. So if you have a client that says I don't have time, that my first place I go is okay, let's, you know what, let's do a time accounting, a time audit, Why don't we do a time journal to see where are you spending your time instead of meal planning or grocery shopping or working out, whatever? And I mean they're spending astonishing amounts of time on social media, three, four, five hours a day, 30, 40 hours. It's almost like a second full-time job to engage with electronic devices, right? And that's horrifying for a lot of them when they (laughs) discover that they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Because a lot of it comes in little blips, right? 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, whatever. Um, so problem number one is just the sheer amount of time that we are not spending in health-promoting behaviors because we are spending time babysitting electronic devices. Um, The second challenge is there's now so much information available at what I would call um, like a mid-level of expertise. So it used to be that you had basic information available and then you had expert information available that you'd have to go to experts to get. And they would have the expert information in their heads that they would then transmit to you. But there was nothing in the in-between as much. Um, But now there's like all this kind of in-between level of knowledge where you can go in there, find something that you're interested in, emerge from it feeling like you now have a level of knowledge that is adequate to base decisions on. When in fact, you basically just attended day one of your first year university class on something. You did not go all the way to the PhD researcher level of depth and context and understanding and expertise. Right? So it's like a really tricky thing because you start to feel like, well, I know how to do this. I read about this diet. I watched this documentary. It said that this way of eating was better. I read about coconut oil or PAMP or whatever. And I feel informed now. I feel informed enough to make a choice or at least to adhere to a particular ideology. So clients are coming in and they're like, Oh, I'm eating this way. Cause I heard that was the best way to do it. And you're like,
0: no, <laughs> you've alluded to, but I'll say it explicitly. It's not just mid level of information, but there's also a lot of misinformation in that space. Right? So you mentioned documentaries, you know, well, this low-hanging fruit to pick on the Netflix documentaries like Game Changers or, or What the Health or whatever, but these things are full of misinformation. You have a lot of people who built very large platforms on providing oversimplified solutions to complex problems who are, are direct competitors for people's attention. I personally don't make it a policy to complain about those very much. I think we have to still do a better job to get people's attention, but that stuff's still out there. So it's not just you know a mid-level of info, but there's act- we're actually combating a lot of wrong information
2: Well, i guess how do you i don't want to say combat it but you have someone that comes to you and they're like yeah like i watched what the health and like and you're like whoa whoa but you can't attack that because then they'll get defensive so like where do you i guess see coaches navigating that talk because that that happens like i can think about that happening like weekly (laughs) with my clients
1: weekly is very generous i would say daily multiple times Yeah. And I, you know, like what, one of the uh, kind of standard practices for mental health is that you never attack someone's delusions directly. Right. <laughs> like, if someone comes to you and says, I'm Napoleon, you're like, that's stupid. You know, and you're not Napoleon. Like that is a wrong move. Yeah. Uh, you have to say, oh, hey, hey, Napoleon, what's up? Let's talk about your life. Um, so, you know, with clients, one of the things, and I think it's difficult for coaches because we have an immediate defensive reaction, right? So we have to figure out how to regulate our own Immediate defensive reactions and our desire to like fix and tell and correct and all that stuff But I think what we can do is get really curious about what is the underlying need? Here that this person is expressing. Maybe they have a health condition. Or they've been seeking for like the solution, right? They don't feel good and they want to feel better and this is like you're gonna feel better and they think wow, that's awesome so that's you know, so you look for the underlying need and you also look for the underlying opportunity if someone is watching this, let's say let's say they're, they're watching a documentary, somehow they're interested in having a conversation about diet, health, well-being, whatever. So you kind of look for, how does this open up a space to talk to my clients about this topic? How does it increase their interest? Did this documentary suddenly get someone interested in health yeah. in a way they've never been interested before? Man, what a huge coaching opportunity. So, you know, curiosity is really one of the the optimal strategies, whether that's curiosity about what need is getting expressed here or, hey, what interested you about this? What did you like about this? What did you find useful? What spoke to you? Oh, I liked how they presented the information in ways that I can understand oh, I liked hearing the story about so-and-so because I'm a cyclist too. And seeing another cyclist, that really spoke to me. So if we can kind of get over ourselves as coaches <laughs> yeah. and not rush in to correct and fix and explain and blah, 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 um, there's actually a massive
2: opportunity there. It's huge. Like you said, like, with clients, even like whatever question they're asking you just like, yeah, like shut the fuck up. Like, that's not true. You don't go there. Like they asked you and reached out to you. Like that's the perfect opportunity to dig deeper and like, you can just have fun and have a conversation. But for most people reaching out and asking those questions is the hardest part of the whole equation. And I would say that like, people miss our coaches will miss that opportunity. They'll use it to shut it down and then they'll never get there again. Where I look at it as like, that's like the thing that you want from them. Like that's what we're asking people to do is ask questions. Or ask themselves questions even
1: yeah absolutely and it's and it's you make such an important point that it is the coaching relationship that we have with them mm-hmm. that even makes that possible that they're willing to come to us and reach out and say you know what do you what do you think about this right I feel dumb asking but like what do you think about this like what an amazing act of trust they are showing in their coach a lot of the time
0: I wanted to go into something you'd said because I don't, I was interested in asking this anyway you mentioned about PN sort of at least the first level, being sort of an undergrad. And I think of PN, this first course, as very much like a university-style course, but it's an alternative to the traditional path. So you've also spoken on podcasts previously about your own, for lack of a better word, distaste for working in academia. And yet, of course, you turned around and went back and got some more. Uh, But as we talked about, you went on to be the principal builder of one of the biggest non-traditional nutrition education entities in the world. So would you share some thoughts on the values of traditional post-secondary education, fitness and nutrition, and from learning from industry leaders like PM?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a terrific question. And one of the things I've really noticed about fitness, health, wellness as an industry is that on average, most of the people in it are really hungry to learn. They love acquiring knowledge. They love learning. They love discovery. Uh, I I think if you talk to a lot of coaches in the field, like where is their money going to weekend certifications or like training opportunities? Like, you know, so there's very learning driven people in this field, which I think is tremendous. And I think the framing point to make here is that there's no, it's really easy to say, oh, this form of education sucks. And this form of education is awesome that's not how it works, right? There's, there's aspects in every domain of education that are valuable that we can extract and that we can use. And it's really just, it's just a set of tools and where we find the tools is, is up to us in a way. I think traditional education excels in um, doing a lot of the basic science that makes our knowledge possible. So they have funding for laboratories. They have funding for, research. Um, They they can buy the fancy equipment. (laughs) They can do a lot of the research that we then use to to base our practice on. Uh, They have researchers who are actively doing that research and pushing the boundaries of knowledge and who are incentivized to to do that. Um, We have a peer review process, right? So you can't just say any wackadoodle stuff that you want a team of people who know just as much as you is going to be looking at your stuff and commenting on it. So I think the peer review process, you know, it has problems, but I think it's one of the better systems that we have come up with. Um, We have ideally (laughs) not necessarily always, but uh, academia focuses a lot on critical thinking uh, and evaluating knowledge and understanding that knowledge is constructed and built and contingent and asking, how do we know what we know? What's the evidence? So it, you know, if if you participate in formal education in, in an ideal way, hopefully you leave with a mind that is equipped with lots of mental tools. Reading research, interpreting research, evaluating research, evaluating knowledge claims, discussing it intelligently with other people. So that's that's sort of the great things about formal education. Plus the amazing library. <laughs> That's one thing I really miss about academia is like the awesome library privileges that you get as faculty. It's like a three month loan. I mean, you don't have to bring anything back ever. Um, but then, I mean, you have a non-traditional education and there's a ton of awesome stuff there, right? Let's say I go to, I don't know, a weekend certification or a workshop that someone puts on, there's a good chance I might be talking to someone who actually is working in the field, not as a researcher, but as a practitioner. Like I might go and talk to the person that coached 100 Olympic athletes. I mean, I went to go see Charlie Francis many, many years ago. and I was just like, wow, like he's a legendary sprint. For those of us who aren't Canadian, right? (laughs) Legendary sprint coach of folks like Ben Johnson. And like to be in the room with a guy was just, holy cow, how much knowledge is in your head? Applied real life knowledge. So you get to interact with the actual practitioners. You get to be much more hands-on a lot of the time. You get to be much more experiential. Uh, You get to interact with other people working in the field. So not just the person leading the sessions, but other professionals maybe, or other peers that are like you. Um, Again, the learning tends to be more hands-on, more experiential, more applied. You're encouraged to sort of take it away in a way that works for you. So there's all kinds of aspects to all forms of education that I think are very helpful. Um, And so for someone working in the field of health and fitness, it's incredibly important to have a formal education. Uh, That's why registered dietitians are typically, you know, a lot of the nutrition radicals see them as squares. They're like, oh, this is what the dietitians don't believe in. Yeah, because it's bullshit. (laughs) Because it's based on crap science and they know it because they have a solid grounding in nutritional biochemistry and gastroenterology and all this stuff. So... You know, people who have a very solid academic training tend to be less suckered into fads and stupid trends. And, you know, they tend to be much more evidence-based. I mean, the downside is you might be less experimental. You might be more rigid. You might not be willing to consider alternative ideas. But at least if you do consider the alternative ideas, you have a very solid apparatus for digesting them and evaluating them.
0: I noticed in the past... I could when John Brody was much more active in in writing and contributing a lot of his own thoughts, he, I mean, he has a PhD for starters, but I found him more experimental. I remember he'd written an article because he tried oil swishing when that was a big topic of conversation. So he explored that. It's almost like he was comfortable with not just being boxed in with the stuff that was only supported by a lot of evidence. He was willing to try and experience for himself, some of the emergent trends and the, the things that were out there in the lesser proven nutritional space and i respect that
1: well yeah it's funny you say that because i literally had a conversation with john brady yesterday i interviewed him so we're working on uh, a definitive guide on intermittent fasting so you know that john wrote john and i wrote this book on intermittent fasting about 10 years ago we realized like oh my gosh (laughs) um which is hard to imagine but anyway so we wrote this first book which was experiments and experiences in intermittent fasting so very hands-on like this was our sample size of two and here's what we discovered and so what we've done is we're, we're now creating a whole definitive guide which is like you know 200 plus pages of information about like okay what is what does the research come to believe in the last 20 years or so how have we updated what we found so I circled back around and I I wanted to do an interview with John about like you know how are you thinking about this stuff now and one of the things he we talked about was exactly this the self-experimentation and he said something interesting which is that Self experimentation is cool, and you know he believes in it. But he said, you know, what I believe in much more is guided self experimentation. Because if you just do self experimentation, there's a really strong chance you fall into self superstition, right? So it's like, oh, I tried this, and this happened. Uh, His example was, oh, I pitched a no hitter wearing this pair of underwear. The underwear must be the. The secret, right not to wear this underwear every single time uh so without the, the guide and the mentorship and the coaching and the supervision and and the interaction with other people who are believable experts and qualified to comment self-experimentation alone doesn't necessarily yield knowledge like real legitimate helpful actionable knowledge
2: yeah one like and this is where like we were talking about evidence-based but like Evidence-based is like gets thrown around loosely, but there's evidence-based can almost be the barrier to some people because they won't look for more options. Where, like, like testing out stuff, but if you know the scientific method and you kind of believe in that process of finding better answers and knocking down pins, then you can start to come to some of these conclusions because you have that background. And evidence-based doesn't mean that you don't try new things. Like, I don't think that's ever what it's meant.
1: No, no. And and your own experience is evidence. Hmm. You know, if every time I eat tomatoes, I break out in hives, that's evidence. Even if no article in the world will ever say that tomatoes are allergenic, maybe I should have picked a better example, like the most random food. Every time I touch a piece of Lego, I break out in hives, right? No literature in the world supports this, but this is my experience. And there are observable things about your experience that I think are, you know, pretty plausible or pretty supportable. So to bring it back around to coaching. Like when a client comes to you and says, when I do this, this happens. I mean, that's still evidence, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that the reason for what's happening is what they ascribe it to. Um, so for here's an example. I mean, this happens all the time. Clients will come to me and say, I either cannot lose weight or I cannot live in maintenance. I'm always going to be gaining or losing. Uh, there's no such thing as consistency for me. I can't. I can't, I can't maintain my weight. And when we dig deeper, what we find is it's not that their body is weirdly broken, because that's, that's how they might explain it. They might say, oh, I must have some bizarre metabolic condition. My body must be broken. What we find out is that their behaviors are a problem, right? They're binging, they're fasting, they're, all, they're doing all kinds of, they're all over the place. That's and hilarious. they've never actually adhered to a consistent, sane, <laughs> realistic plan for any long you know, period of time. So what they're experiencing is very real. It's just their explanation of it might be incorrect and that's where the coach comes in
2: well and this is actually a perfect segue to what we wanted to talk about anyways but you've often mentioned connecting as a human being as being a key to being a better coach versus just telling people basic information kind of like you went over but would you expand on why this relationship matters in coaching
1: yeah this relationship is everything i mean it really is everything if you do not have a relationship with your athletes or the people that you're coaching or whoever you have no power to make any intervention whatsoever uh, the only exception to that is something like uh, if you're training people in an atmosphere of like authoritarian fear right like i talked i talked to a lot of chinese athletes a few times that i was over there and the way they describe the sport system working is like you know they pluck you out of a small mining town at a young age and they, and they put you in a highly structured program and the alternative is basically either you get a gold medal or you go back to wherever you came from, right? So, <laughs> and there's like a lot of shame-based motivation. I mean, so it's we a very fun. like-
2: We had someone on the podcast that talked about, I don't, I don't know if it was our podcast or something, maybe it's like one of my friends, the but they, they were at a national event, like with the Chinese team, and like, this was in the past, maybe it wasn't one of my old clients who's a lifter, but like full on this, this gymnastics, like Chinese athlete got like, bitch slapped in the face, for, like in, in public. Yeah, but, it, but they couldn't do anything because like that's the relationship they have, even though it was on international ground, it's like they just didn't say anything. And she's like, it was so shocking. So anyway, yes. Extreme, but like. Could now, now, none of the three of us are allowed to travel to China. Yeah.
0: Having said this, well, as as Canadians,
1: as Canadians, I think our chances were sort of dodgy to
2: begin with,
1: <laughs> <laughs> in international events in the last few years.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on, moving. On, I just wanted to say that because, like,
1: that's right. Yeah, now we're talking about politics. Although, but I mean, I, I think like it's it's so interesting. Um, to, I mean, to take a sideline, right? Like, we're recording this now in the time of the coronavirus. Yeah. right? And how that is like, affecting the conversation around international relations and how like every country is now becoming paranoid about yeah. every other country. And I mean, it's a fascinating kind of sociological conversation about fear of the other and, and contamination, and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so, okay. So aside from like totalitarian regimes or whatever, um, you know, or, or even like the, you know, the mid-century Soviets were very similar. So it's yeah. not like, yeah, um, you know, and, and ancient warrior societies were not known for their touchy feely approach too. So but the point is in in modern coaching, um, the relationship that you have with your with your athletes or clients is everything because you know, even if you have a high performance person who is very intrinsically driven, they still have to trust you. they still have to trust your advice. they still have to believe in you and and you still have to support them. and the best athletes have the most coaches, they have the most support, the higher your level of performance, the more support you have. Um, And human beings change in a context of safety and security. It's a really interesting paradox, right? It's only when I feel safe with you, or safe enough, um, and that I at least trust you on some level, that I'm willing to do what you say at a deep level, like maybe in the beginning, I'll want to please you and maybe I'll do something just because you tell me to, but if you're thinking about like a long-term client results oriented relationship that can't exist without the human factor, right? Nobody's a robot who's just going to do what they're told. That's just,
2: just I, I have a perfect example. And I don't know if Peter, you know, but like Travis Mash, he's like, he coaches some of the best Olympic weightlifting athletes in in america anyways so like they're good athletes they're high performers they're gonna do well anyways but this one athlete and and he's just like all he had to do is it's going for the gold medal and he was about to lift this weight and like they were nervous and he would he just looked to him and he's like go fucking get it and like that's just his coaching element but he gave the athlete permission and just smashed it someone who usually chokes and but it was that relationship he didn't do anything like all the training has already been done but that relationship is kind of what gave him permission, gave the athlete permission to be what they were. And it may have been a different outcome had it been a different conversation. And so as coaches, you can kind of, if you know which levers the pull in certain moments, you can, you can kind of get the results you want. that they, could, they can achieve, but they might not without getting pushed a little bit.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, I have I have a, a similar kind of story, which was that a good friend of mine, Elena Hardy, who who went on to compete to represent Canada at the World Grappling uh, Championships years ago, she's you know gone on to get her black belt. I mean, she's very highly regarded, was a top competitor. But early on, we start we started the sport together, and she actually like practiced, and I didn't. So you know, amazingly, she got better, and I did so much, but. <laughs> It's amazing. I'm sure my metabolism is broken. And that's my explanation. A lesson
2: there.
1: That's right. <laughs> but there was a moment where we were at the same competition and she was having an attack of like pre-match nerves. And like, finally, I'd, I'd listen to her, listen to her, listen to her. And I had enough and I was kind of semi-cornering her. And I was like, get out there and do your fucking job. <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me and she was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And off she went and like cleaned house and it was great. But that's the kind of thing you can only say to an athlete that you have a long-standing relationship with you can't be the you know captain hard-ass coach saying that to your your athletes because eventually they're going to perform worse and worse and worse um and so you know punishment and fear and approval all those things might motivate people in the beginning but for the long-term development that you would want for body transformation for athletic performance for you know sustained health it's just not going to work
0: plus if you're an NHL coach and you have a history of Abusive behavior. Eventually, <laughs> yeah, eventually it's gonna to come to light. The whole Mark Crawford, uh, I think, oh yeah, uh, but who, was it uh, Babcock? Babcock was a all of them. One. Literally everyone from the era got
2: called out, like almost, except for like I think even the Sutters did. Like, pretty much every like great Canadian coach got called out for being. A lot kind of people of backed out. up the
0: Sutters because it turns out that like there's there's tough and there's abusive and there's a line. And yes. I, uh, the guy that the flames stepped down from the Calgary Flames. I can't remember his name. Well, racism was the line. Well, like he was a piece. He was, I'm sorry. You're going to be a racist piece of shit then mm-hmm. Too bad. But Crawford is just an awful human being, according to a lot of his. You think Babcock letters. was awful, too? I mean to say Babcock. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, like, Awful. Babcock.
2: Terrible. Even. Anyway,
1: we're off track. Well, no, 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 but this, a is a, this is an important point, right? Like the, there is a line yeah. between tough and abusive and some athletes yeah. love the captain Hardass style. I actually have had like captain Hardass coaches and I love them. Like, you know, ladies stop, you know, stop screwing around. Like I love that kind of coaching. It's super fun for me. I love the drill sergeant coach, uh, but it's exactly as you say, there is a line between tough and abusive. So mm-hmm. having high standards, enforcing them strictly, insisting on rigorous performance standards, that's tough. You know, maybe drop it F-bombs all the time. That's tough. That's fine. Abusive is a whole different, you know, uh, game, right? That's getting in people's heads. That's systematically breaking them down. A tough coach, that kind of proverbial, like tough but fair coach builds you up. It's the subject of every football movie ever made, right? Or every sports movie. There's that coach who's like, he's crusty, but he builds the athletes up. And ultimately, after interacting with him or her, they're stronger. They're better human beings. After you interact with an abusive coach, you're worse.
0: That's the difference. Except John Voigt in *Varsity Blues*, which (laughs) is—he
2: was—he was was an abusive piece of shit. (laughs) Well, But the thing is, like, I think that is important, and even for coaches listening it's that idea of like so the NHL blew up and they're like oh my god these guys are bad but the players defended the the quote unquote tough coaches like even though, even now to the outside world they're like oh he said fuck and he like he said all these mean things and the players like no 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 we were good with that and i so i guess it's contextual but then the Babcock they weren't um the guy from Calgary they weren't and so i guess yeah like i don't know it's just it's interesting as a coach because we want to model after some of these coaches, but we have to know what that line is, but that line is different per sport. I'm sure that line is different from, from golf than it would be for hockey and like not maybe right or wrong or football, for example, you said varsity blues, but like some of that shit, like I, I, my coach literally call us a bunch of fucking pussies, kick the garbage can across the, the room and, threw a weight. We had a weightlifting room in our junior college and like he threw the weight at the garbage and we were all sitting there and we played so much better the second half. But if someone looked into that room who like didn't know the sport, they'd be like, oh my God, like fire everyone. Well, imagine Bobby Knight being prominent in today. And if anyone isn't familiar with Bobby
0: Knight, the famous college basketball coach from Indiana University. And Bobby was legendary for his tirades. He was a temper tantrum walking around. It's like John the John McEnroe of the uh, the basketball coaching world and i think his act got a little tired but it seemed to have a line where i don't i'm not aware that he was actually hitting players or putting his hands on players maybe i'm mistaken i don't know but he just seemed to be just a
2: fucking temperature let's let's not, do you yeah do you find that do you find that there can be it can be a useful tactic and let's use the nutrition space because that's where we're at like how do you kind of navigate being hard and not abusive like what does that look like in in a coaching relationship in this realm because we're not throwing weights at people or, or kicking garbage. At them. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you
1: know, like, it's, a, it's a great question. And before I go there, like this, this actually reflects also um, uh, the question of being client centered, right? Like what, what does the person across from you actually need in a coaching relationship? It's interesting too, because I did a podcast a while back uh, on the QB docs and we talked about football. It was the, which is funny me getting on a football podcast but anyway we talked about the development of football players and the guys talked about the lasting scars that they experienced because okay so maybe an nhl player who's you know 20 21 is at the end of, of you know 20 years or so 15 20 years of being enculturated in that environment and becoming embedded in a system where it's like the kind of Stockholm syndrome, right? Where you start to think it's normal. You start to think that this is the only way to do it. You start to respond to it in a way that's been very like conditioned. Um, And, you know, and and you might emerge from it saying, oh, yeah, now the coaches are good guys. Like you might be defending the abusers because you've been so steeped in that culture. So we had a really interesting conversation about like the scars, the emotional and mental scars that it's kind of left on them to... Come up in that environment, so I'm not entirely convinced that it's like entirely you know a straightforward, awesome process for everybody. But you know, you you do have to be very client centered, and even if you're coaching a team, each athlete on that team is going to need something different. And even if it's, I mean, I think we're making the dichotomy of like hard versus soft, right? But there's all kinds of spectrums of clients. So for example, uh, clients who think very holistically versus clients who think very analytically and technically. Right? You have athletes that are like amazing technicians. So, the feedback they need to improve their game is not work harder. It's like, let's break down your game into like these infinite tiny pieces and look at them one by one and, you know, 100 hours of video footage and whatever. Um, in the nutrition space, it, it's, very, it's a very similar principle. You're going to have a, a small percentage of clients that do motivate with the Captain Hard Ass approach put your big girl pants on, stop crying a little bitch, get in the game. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes you need to hear that, right? You're like, yeah, okay. And and I'll I'll sometimes even say this to myself in like a very good natured, (laughs) like, okay, stop being a little baby, like get on with it. Right. Um, And sometimes it's like, if it's motivating, it's motivating. If it works, it works. If it, if it, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, But a lot of our clients, depending on the population are already so self-critical so traumatized, the nutrition issues they're dealing with are literally a result of trauma. Like they're post-traumatic coping mechanisms from like childhood sexual abuse and emotional abuse and physical abuse and whatever, right? So a lot of the times the Captain Hardass approach is is potentially further traumatizing and we need to sit with every client and sort of assess what do they need? And, And we can get this out of conversation, right? How are they talking about themselves? What language are they using? What's their mindset? What's their mental approach to solving problems? And for the vast majority of clients, whether I push them later or not, starting with an attitude of self-compassion from them, like building it in them and compassion from me and scaffolding that like empathetic, uh, client-centered approach so that they learn to do it themselves is almost never the wrong approach even for someone that's a little bit crusty a little bit prickly and a little bit of a hard ass, even for the most like, you know, grizzled martial artists who've been hit in the head 500 times before they came to see me, it still works.
2: Well, I think like that's the hard answer. Cause like, like as much as we talk about tough and stuff, that's actually, especially depending on where you're from your background, it's really easy to be a hard ass where it's harder to kind of try to find the deeper answer. And I, I just, I guess the advice is for coaches not to shy away from that stuff and getting better at that will actually get you, It'll give you more tools to get the results you want. Because if you if you can't use a TADASS approach approach, like and that's your only hammer, that's <laughs> you right. Might, you might you might be screwed. Especially like I'm thinking I came from a football background. I was a head coach of a football team. If I treated my nutrition clients like I did my football team, yeah, I wouldn't be I can some of my CrossFit athletes I can do it with. And I know but yeah, sure. I know who I can do it with. I wouldn't use that for ninety percent of my clients. I, I would I wouldn't have a job.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, describing it as a tool, I think is a really good analogy, right? You, as a coach, you have to be a chameleon. You have to be able to offer a full spectrum of responses and tactics and tools. If your only tool is a temper tantrum, (laughs)
2: like
1: you're running out of options real quick.
2: (laughs) It feels good. It's it's awesome. Yeah. I I mean, toddlers everywhere (laughs) know. I can feel like as a coach, I've had a few like temper tantrums and like, they were totally like, we would go in as coaches and be like, listen, I'm going to fucking throw a fit and yell these and it was like it was kind of fun to put that hat on but like it was so awful
1: (laughs) (laughs) well and also too like if you're if you're throwing temper tantrums and getting so frustrated you have to really ask yourself how how much work am i doing versus how much work is my athlete doing like why am i caring more than my athletes about the outcome that we're getting right uh and jeff gervitz of bank fitness in toronto i don't know if you know him He had this idea of care units, which is basically like everyone's got a finite amount of care units or like how many shits you give about something. And if you give more care units about a client's issues than they give about their own issues or about their own change, you are coaching wrong. So you should always care one unit less than your clients do about their change. So if they come in and they're a 10 out of 10, awesome. You can be a 9 out of 10. They come in, and they're a four out of ten. You can be a three out of ten, and be okay with it, and not try to get them, not try to get them to a ten out of ten simply by adding more of your care units into the mix. We
2: called it like at our old gym. We actually, it's funny you say that. We called it so instead of watts, it was your wattage. Oh. Like, oh, that's good. I'm stealing yeah. that. Yeah, like, it, but it was Huntage. like, how bad do you want it? But like, what's your wantage at? And it was like so stupid, but it became a thing, and like because it was like a simple. I guess, metaphor for like, yeah, like I don't want to have a higher wanted than you. And it, it, it was so stupid, but that made me think of it because like the same fucking thing. But it's, it's a good, easy, I guess, metaphor for people to grasp on because they get it.
1: Yeah, wantage is terrific. But, you know, so I, like I think this is a lesson for a lot of coaches. If, if I'm spending a lot of time frustrated, angry, pissed off, uh, anxious, stressed out, irritated, I have the problem. Yeah. Not my athletes, not my clients.
0: Yeah, let's you, actually. You yeah, it, it? yeah, sure. Yeah. Because it's something that uh, I dug up. So I, I listened to another podcast that you had appeared on, uh, Kevin Larabee Spitcast. Just as a sort of a refresher for some of the stuff that I wanted to have you and your history top of mind. And one of the comments that you made was that the experience and environment of working at PN made you and your peers unemployable in the team. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and so I wanted to know what makes PN unique and how is this environment being. Uh, you know, both the catalyst for the most successful company of its kind in the industry and I'm not sure I know how to ask this, uh, what are your thoughts on how this can relate to the coaches listening to be more successful in their own career development?
1: Okay, cool. Uh, let me, I mean, I'll, I'll talk, I'll tackle the first one first and then remind me if I don't get to the second one. Um, so, and the funny thing is the first person who described themselves as unemployable at Precision Nutrition was Phil Caravaggio, one of the co-founders. Uh, and he was describing both him and John Berardi as currently being unemployable. So I think that's a really funny part of that history. But it's almost, like the analogy that I would make is you have taken zoo animals and returned them to the wild (laughs) and trained, like retrained them to become the majestic free beast that they are by putting them in their natural environment and allowing them to thrive. And so I think what precision nutrition does, there's a very, well, in our certification, we talk about awesomeness based coaching, right? Versus awfulness based coaching. So awfulness based coaching is when you come to me and I'm like, here's all the things wrong with you. Here's all the reasons why you should feel bad about yourself. Here's all your deficiencies. Whereas awesomeness-based coaching is like, hey, here's all the strengths. Here's all the things you're doing well. Can we just amplify that? Can we do it better? Or in athletic terms, it's looking at an athlete's body and saying, you know what? You're like four foot 10, (laughs) but just muscle. You should go be a weightlifter rather than making them go be a basketball player, right? Uh, So it's a very strengths-based perspective, which I think many organizations pay lip service to But we have a whole infrastructure around identifying it, building it, amplifying it, um, making it part of your daily life tasks. So um, this term doesn't come from us. It comes from Dan Sullivan's coaching, which is unique abilities. And if you haven't read uh, Dan Sullivan's book, Unique Abilities, it's really a helpful read. But the idea is that all of us have not just characteristics, but things that we do that are very unique to us. And they're, they're funny things like, you know, Susan is just so good at organizing parties, right? Or like Bob is just that guy who always knows what to say in difficult situations, right? So they're funny little things that people can do. And there's a very formal unique ability process that we go to it, go through a PN and we look at what are the gifts that people bring? And then how do we just find the role that they fit in? So let's say someone is just a very extroverted, bubbly, sociable person who just loves to help. My God, give them a job in customer service. And you don't have to motivate them. That's the secret, right? When when, when animals are in the wild doing what they do best, you don't have to motivate the lion to go and eat an antelope. It's what they do. It's what they're designed for. You don't have to eat, you know, ask a shark to be motivated to go and eat things. It's 100% designed by evolution to do that. So what happens is you have an organization that not only doesn't need management um because people are already excited to do the work and to show up and and to produce more than they think they're capable of but people are producing their best work because they're not hamstring away on shit they hate doing or that they feel like they should do so it's been super it's been really revolutionary and i think the revolutionary part is not just the strengths focus, but how dedicated the organization is to living those values every single day. Every single day we talk about it and think about it. Um, you know, leading my curriculum team, I'm like, who would be best to do what? I'm always thinking about that. Who is the best place to do that? And then once I have someone in the best place possible, I just unsnap the leash and off they go. <laughs> so, so I think that's, um, you know, so to relate it back to coaches career development, often a lot of pressure in the fitness industry to be someone or something other than you are Uh, whether that's your own the way your body looks oh as a coach I need to be super lean I need to be super jack I need to look this way I need to perform this way I need to have a great bench press whatever it is um whereas (laughs) whereas in reality it's like where would I thrive Where, where would I be strong? Where would I be best? So like, if I think about, for example, uh, who are my clients? I tend to work best with two groups of people. Oddly enough, I work with young guys really well. I don't know why they seem to find me. (laughs) So like young guys who are lost, um, I, I work with them really, really well. And women like me who are at midlife, who are anxious, you know, driven, high performing, uh, overthinking, like doing a lot of things. Those are my two client groups. And so I'm not going out there saying, oh my gosh, I'm a shitty coach because I don't work with professional bodybuilders because I don't work with whoever. I don't work with postpartum women or whatever. Um, I'm playing to my strengths. And so, I mean, when you're a new coach, you kind of have to take everybody, right? You have to work with everybody. You have to keep all of the doors open and do lots of exploring. But as you refine your practice and refine your knowledge of yourself, you have to really know where am i strong um and how can i just do more of that and in the areas where i have difficulties or deficiencies or weaknesses how do i bring them up to a level that they aren't causing damage and then just leave them alone
2: so interesting because we literally just i had a very similar conversation with jeb Stuart johnston like we weren't trashing on niches but long story short is like in the beginning you don't know what the hell you're good at. Even like if you think you're good at something, it kind of just naturally goes as you evolve as a coach. But the biggest part was, and maybe you have some input on this. How do you become aware of what those are? Because I think a lot of coaches aren't aware of what they're good at or they can't do a self audit on the things that they're, what do you, you call them, superhuman at or whatever. Like, so I guess, how do you identify that as a coach personally? And then maybe as a business, how have you gone about doing it?
1: Yeah, I think there are, there are, a few ways. I mean, one of them is just to seek feedback and I think a lot of people don't like to seek feedback. Um I've heard people say, "Well, I don't I don't want to bother other people or I'm afraid of what they're going to say." So, there's a really good book called Thanks for the Feedback, which I highly recommend anyone read and it's about giving feedback but also receiving feedback. Um you know, so seeking it's I mean, it's the same as like if you're an athlete and you never look at any data on your performance or you never look at footage of your games or whatever. How can you possibly be better? Yeah. How can you possibly improve, right? So you must get feedback, not just from yourself. You have to get feedback from, again, believable experts, what Ray Dalio calls believable experts, people who are able to intelligently comment on your abilities um, or where they see the potential in you. So that's that's piece number one. Piece number two is look for what gives you energy. So maybe you love working with youth. Like maybe you have a real job, quote unquote, doing something else, but maybe you love like you're volunteering with the youth boxing organization. That is what gets you out of bed. Like you're leaping out of bed at four in the morning to go work with those kids, it gives you so much energy. It gives you so much meaning down the road, maybe that's a career path for you, right? So look for what gives you energy, a sense of purpose, a drive, a sense of meaning, so much so that you should be um, finding yourself gravitating toward it over and over and over again. This is the third piece. What do you find yourself doing? I will read anything, like the back of a shampoo bottle. I'll, I'll like stand there and read it and be like, oh, lather, rinse, repeat, or the back of cereal box, or like instructions on medication. I will read any words that are put in front of me <laughs> Um, And that tells me about myself. It tells me that I'm someone who is curious, who likes information presented in verbal form, who likes consuming it, who likes to learn, right? So look for clues about what you find yourself always doing. Um, And it might be useful for you to look at also the things that you struggle with, because a lot of the times, those are the flip side of your superpowers. And I got feedback recently That i'm not really sad about (laughs) which is krista has problems following rules and processes 100 that's always like that's always like my you know i i have given elementary school teachers in grade three nervous breakdowns because of this so this is not the first person to note this but in my role i was not hired to follow rules and procedures i was hired to break rules and wreck procedures and make up new procedures right so look for where people are criticizing you and see if there's a nugget in there that may actually be extremely useful. So maybe again, if you're, if you're a failed basketball player, maybe you're going to be an amazing gymnast.
2: Well, that's, and I like that one, even for like personal wise, because I think a lot of being self-aware or mindful of what you're good at a lot of the times, like you don't want to hear what you're bad at, but if you search what you're bad at, then you can find the flip side. Then it just kind of makes that whole process a little less hurtful to your ego. <laughs> you know, yeah. like searching for a reward in that, because like now I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, why do I do the things I do? And it's very similar. Like I hate writing, but I was like, oh, I'm good at a podcast because I can talk anyone's ear off. So it's but it's like I did that naturally. But had I had like I guess a model for identifying those things, it might have came come a lot quicker, so to speak. And that's a easy. that's the easiest thing you can do. Like, everyone knows what they suck at. Like, even yeah. if they don't want to admit it, like, they know. And we just yeah. Mm. Early on that I write the podcast. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, gave, I gave them one to do. It, I, I do a side project. It, and, it went
0: and got drunk with the guest, and then they came to record it. It was very <laughs> fun. Amazing. Uh, that, was, that was, like, number
2: three. We, we, <laughs> number six. We became more professional after that. Sorry. So since then, I've been doing all the writing. Uh, <laughs> But like, that's good. Like, I think that that's a very helpful, I guess, way of looking at it because, because I guess as coaches grow, they grow into what they eventually do. And I would say like you, you, you highlighted it, but there's this idea of like, we should do this or do that. Or like we talk about Instagram and and online coaching all the time, but you need to post every day or you need to post this infographic and that's just not going to work for everyone. But if you, if you don't listen, if you only listen to the authorities, quote unquote, like you may never get to the point where you can niche down or you can be happy or you can break rules if you don't like breaking, especially if you only follow one model.
1: Yeah, and I think the, the really interesting thing that tells me that this is true is the higher up you go in levels of achievement and professionalism and development, the less likely you are to be someone who is boxed in. Right. Uh, so there was an interesting study on high school valedictorians and people who were valedictorians in high school. And like, what did they go on to do? What were their lives like? And what the study showed is that, of course, you know, very few of them went on to live in a van down by the river. Right? They all like accomplished things in their lives. But very few of them, almost none of them did anything awesome. There were no Steve Jobs in the valedictorians there's no Marie Curie in the valedictorians like it was it was people so valedictorians were people who were really good at following rules and doing things according to established procedures uh, so that's why they got good grades <laughs> so they were they they would go on to middle management or maybe some kind of law career or whatever but they would never be the innovators the paradigm smashers the elon musks of the world and i think it's that's super interesting to me as you go up the ranks of elite personal and professional development you have more and more and more individuality and eccentricity and people kind of living as themselves the most fully. It's actually in the lower strata of professional development that conformity is much more enforced. So that to me is like, wow, that's super interesting. But to go back to your point about what you're shitty about, something else to ask yourself is what would make my life suck? Like what are conditions that I absolutely hate? For me, working in a cubicle farm, I would rather sand my face off like that to me is death. (laughs) And that's also a very useful clue. And as you say, people might not know what they're good at or what they love, but they sure know what they suck at and what they hate. So if you can find that list and then just flip it, um, that's another way to, to know.
0: I did the traditional business. I did the business degree. I did the work for the bank, you know, (laughs) as a a trainee. And I hated it. I hated the suit and tie sort of thing. And being on the floor coaching all the time is something that I personally really love. So it took me a long time. And, And again, I was one of those like, crushed at grades in school and you know I wasn't technically the valedictorian uh, even though there were only nine people in my class somehow I wasn't there was actually one girl <laughs> it's right. Gonna right. Hurt. a little <laughs> higher <for> a <laughs> <than> <laughs> counted. Land, we like. died from like rural Newfoundland <laughs> originally but, <laughs> but yeah, I think I went from that what you described being boxed into finding a career that I enjoy <clears throat> and then <throat> unleash the other side of it uh, and I, I don't pretend to be the greatest innovator in our space but at the same time yeah, I, I got out of s- these boxed in traditional environments, and just something that well, well, it'd be good. I had
2: fun with it, and the my career has flourished as a result. Well, the reason why I think it's an important conversation because maybe there's someone younger looking at this because I'd say like a lot of these innovators, especially without that knowledge, may have just stumbled upon it. Mm-hmm. it. It would have been really nice to be surgical about it at a young age, like you know, identify and just maybe like. I guess, change your trajectory early as opposed to like hoping it works out because a lot of the times it doesn't happen by, it happens by accident, but then what if it doesn't? Then you're stuck in this thing and you could have changed it had you have known, I guess, these skills, so to speak.
1: Yeah, totally. And there's another piece that I think is really discussed, which is in the field of health and fitness, a lot of people who come into it as athletes or as very physical people have learning disabilities, right? They struggle with learning. They struggle with all kinds of things, reading, writing, verbal skills, whatever it is. Um, And so they might have grown up in the traditional school system thinking that they're stupid because they they could not somehow process information in the same ways. Um, And so like when, so then when I say to that person, Oh, you should be writing a blog post every day. They're like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Like I, there's no way. And then they think, Oh, I suck. Right. So the temptation is always to kind of turn it back on ourselves and say, I must suck. I must not be good enough. Rather than saying, A, where's my niche? B." how can I build the skills to flourish in that? And then C, just put in the reps? Because one of the tricky things about being younger is you don't have as much of a sense of time and you don't have as much of a, kind of long game perspective. And things take a lot longer than you think, right? So maybe you're grinding and it sucks. And you're like, I'm 25. How come I'm not making seven figures like the internet people tell me? I should?" <laughs> and by the way, if you're in strength and conditioning coaching, there's a really strong chance you're not going to make a seven figure income ever.
2: The thing about, we talked about that recently with Andy McCoy actually. Yeah. yeah. It, it, paid that well. One, the thing about, like, when we're, we're trashing people who get stuck in a way of thinking, but if you are in that box, especially in this industry, things seem to be changing with social media at times to the point where, like, the actual atmosphere and environment might outgrow that line of thinking. And mm-hmm. you may just get... And so it, that's what scares me the most in terms of like being stuck in a model or being stuck in this quote unquote system, because the system has like changed. Even if you look at the diets that have been popular and change, everything seems to be changing that double down, like double downing on one thing is probably not a very helpful idea in terms of longevity, because this is super volatile on nutrition and, and fitness. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and really the thing that's going to help you the most is learning how to learn. I mean, that's why, we you know, when we, we, when we uh, rewrote our textbook, this latest round, the V4, uh, chapter two, learning how to learn, and really talking about this idea of skills and practices and daily actions, um, you know, as, as being something that applies to everywhere in life. And so if you're sucking at something, sometimes it is a matter of just getting better skills, maybe having skill development and, and that guided practice, um, but learning how to learn is one of the best things you can ever know, because, I mean, if we we go back to my academic career, like everything I learned in academia, like I had nothing to do with what I'm doing now. And I think that's just the the reality of modern life for a lot of people, but the skills that it gave me, I'm like an A plus learner of things or a finder outer of things or a discoverer or an analyzer. So like those things will ensure that no matter what happens in the world, I'll be able to adapt and accommodate. Whereas if you're if you're rigid and you don't have the skills to adapt, that's when you're in big trouble.
2: And it costs a lot less in Canada. <laughs>
1: yes, there's that. Oh my gosh! Like yeah. it's not
2: a two hundred fifty thousand dollar bill to learn how to learn. It's it's like twenty or whatever.
1: Yeah, and we can get free healthcare while we do it. We can we can have open heart surgery while we go to school. <laughs>
2: not going to the <laughs> No. no, 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 no.
0: <laughs> what I what I had a thought and I didn't advanced question, but it got me thinking. Like, PN has been, you know, a major player in this sort of nutritional coaching and nutritional education space for a long time. But now we're seeing the emergence of more companies and some of them are definitely your competitors in one or the other. So, uh, you know, Dean works for Stronger You. you know, they're doing really, really well as a nutrition coaching company. You have Macros Inc. Uh, some of our friends are involved with that, Brad Dieter is now a part of that thing. And then obviously the other certification company that gets a lot of attention is, is Mac uh, MNU Mac University so how has the emergence of these you know competitors um, changed the focus of PN what has it made you guys do to you know stay on at, at the top of the industry and uh, improve your game?
1: Well, your question makes me think of something that Phil Caravaggio said to me many, many years ago when I had just quit my job in academia and I was all worried because I was looking around and I was like, oh my God, everyone else knows more than me and they're better than me. And like, I was overwhelmed by at the time, which is funny to think now, but at the time what seemed like just so many people in the space making things. And he said, you know what? I really don't worry about um, what other people are doing. I spend most of my energy making sure that I'm making something awesome and I've always thought that was really useful wisdom uh and he he was also talking about it in the context of um you know back in the day people shit talking John Berardi's work right and I was like does John is John worried about this and Phil's just like no we don't care because we're so focused on doing what we love doing and doing awesome things and so I actually don't really subscribe to a competition model i subscribe more to a collaboration model because there are so many people out there that need our help i mean poor health lifestyle diseases whatever like are a massive global phenomenon like we could never produce enough materials to help everyone who needs to be helped Combined, and so combined yeah like even if we worked around the clock right uh, and so I don't see other people working in the space as competitors. I see them as collaborators. And this is why I love talking to other people in the industry. Cause I'm like, Oh, what are you guys doing over there? Like, what are you doing over the fence there? What have you come up with? Could we share? Could we partner? Right. And so in our certification, we're often saying to people, Oh, if you want to learn about such and such, go see these people. They're terrific. If you want to learn about supplements, go see the people at examine.com. If you want to learn more about coaching women, go see Girls Gone Strong, right? So there's there's lots and lots of ways that collectively we can be better. And one of Phil's contentions is that nothing worth doing can be done alone. So if I try to just cut down all my competitors and eliminate them from the field, now I'm trying to do this like massive work alone without the benefit of additional insight or additional support. So that's kind of my take on it. And... Um, I kind of maintain an attitude of curiosity like oh does their website look better than ours oh cool what are they doing oh I really like how they do that so um, that's how we look at it and that's how I look at it in particular
0: your abundance mindset and I like your point especially because we say this sort of thing all the time with trainers why would be any different for nutrition Uh, like what percentage of the population is actually engaging in fitness yeah we spent our time in a red ocean fighting over Uh, the same clients already were were losing the battle. You mentioned Steve Jobs and Apple earlier. Apple is a great example of uh, a disruptor that created an entirely new blue ocean through many all of its products over time. And they they didn't sit in in, an entrenched business model trying to fight for the same clientele. They built new uh, consumer bases. So if you and Stronger You and Macros Inc are turning around and helping more people versus fighting and swabbling over those same people,
2: like you said, you're helping well, yeah. a bigger population. Well, even logistically, we've said this before, there's so much fucking money in fitness, like everyone's hoarding and trying to be scarce. It's like, we can't even serve the amount of people who want to pay us.
1: Yeah,
2: totally, totally,
1: totally. And there was something else you said though that I, um, I just kind of wanted to pick up on. Um, like the, it's the blue ocean thing. Like when we are in a defensive mindset, a reactive mindset, we are not producing our best work. Right. And and the analogy I always go to is martial arts, cause that's part of my background. Right. But if I go into a fight and all I'm doing all my whole game plan is react to what my opponent gives me and fight their game. Oh, they have long arms. They're tall. This is how they're going to fight. This just have to think about it. I'm, I'm almost inevitably not gonna put in my best performance. Whereas if I go in there, I'm like, okay, it goes back to our conversation earlier. Here's the things that I'm awesome at. Here is my game. Here's the thing I love to do and I I flourish when I do it. I'm gonna go in there and play my game, right? I'm gonna play a short person's game. I'm not gonna play the tall person's game. And consequently, I'm gonna be inspired and much more creative and much more innovative because I'm focused on creating, not on reacting
0: you and Jeb Johnston, who we were just talking about, are kind of the same person in these two podcasts, because <laughs> something in the context of jujitsu. So you guys are jujitsu's
1: life. It's full of metaphors for everything. It's the like universal metaphor. Get on
0: several of the same points. So I kind of hope anyone who listens to these, and we haven't decided which order we're going to them I actually am thinking of putting yours out first, so anyone who's hearing us talking, they won't have the benefit of maybe hearing Jeb. So go listen to Jeb's next week, because you guys are going to hear so many- of the same talking points presented from similar and different points of view so I hope everybody enjoys it basically um,
2: hit, her, hit her up with the life one <laughs> well <laughs> we've been asking our, our guests um, <laughs> uh
1: oh the life <laughs> one uh, this sounds heavy
0: how do you and we'll, we'll apply to you but you can also throw in the other leaders at uh, PN how do you guys set boundaries with work and work and career and uh, personal life and uh, stepping away from the grind of work or not grind.
1: Yeah, or not grind, right? I mean, that's one of the tricky things is that when you love your work, <laughs> your work does become your life, right? And and in a very fulfilling way, I think often we have this model of like the sad, workaholic, driven, like alone person that the image I always have is of, I don't know why, like a really anxious Uh, middle-aged white lady on the phone at her child's soccer game. Like that's the image of the workaholic I have, that they cannot find any pleasure in in family or any other kind of aspect of life that isn't the office. And I don't think that's an accurate representation of people who have chosen lives of fulfilling work because our work is, is part of our lives. It's not our whole life, but it is part of our lives. And, And I work with such amazing colleagues at Precision Nutrition I work all day alone in a room, but I never feel alone because I, I'm constantly connecting and collaborating and talking with all these amazing people. So I think the, the concept of work-life balance is a very tricky one when we're describing this situation. Um, I do think that we can allow things to get out of balance a little bit and that we spend all of our time, energy, attention, mental real estate in that domain um, so, you know, we do have to really think very consciously about what, what is the proper balance for things? And I, and I don't think that balance is like a, a static 50, 50, right? Balance comes a lot more from intentional presence. And that sounds kind of woo woo, but what I mean is Absolutely. when I'm at work, I'm at work. I am like mentally at work. My phone is off. Like my sisters were calling me the other day and I'm like, I'm not going to pick up the phone because I'm, I'm at work and not that, you know, I don't want to deal with them. It's just like, I can't, I can't have my head go to that space right now. Then when it's family time is family time, right? It's like with athletes, it's like when it's recovery, don't fart around and come into the gym, right? And, and work out like that's not recovery. When it's time to recover, fucking recover, (laughs) like go all in and recover. So a lot of this is about intentional presence. Where is your head at? Wherever you are, be there. And that's much, much more sustaining, I think, than any abstract idea of like, oh, you should have this much vacation or you should, you know, whatever. It's really about how do you want to live your life? What kind of person do you want to be? What do you value in your life? And are you intentionally placing your attention fully in all of those domains, in the right proportions
0: for you. That's a very Cal Newport thought. I don't know if, <laughs> like, if like it aligns with your philosophy or if you, if you plumbed it from his book. He actually wrote something similar uh, towards the end of Deep Work, which I'm rereading. And what he talks about is this idea that when you you know step away from work, that people just kind of go into this relaxation mode and they're not really engaged in their, their personal pursuits. like. And then they end up scrolling social media like you were talking Mm -hmm. about and people have this idea that no if you actually plan things that you personally want to do and really engage in them that that idea is very fatiguing when in fact they're actually much more fulfilling and you feel more recharged and rewarded because you immerse yourself in passionate projects outside of your work whereas a lot of people just think oh in order to recharge i literally need to just slump on the couch and mindlessly watch television and mindlessly scroll social media well Anyone
2: who's had that experience, I'm going to ask you: How did that feel? Did that ever yeah. really well, make you feel <laughs> well, sometimes. recharged? Yeah. Fuck no, it yeah, doesn't. I, that's not true. I was, I'm watching like Netflix. Love is blind. Like that's pretty.
1: Oh my god, me too. I'm so yeah. embarrassed to say this on, on, on yeah, it's yeah, not recorded. It's, I'm it's watching it too.
2: Pretty fucking fulfilling. <laughs> like I don't know. Like I really like it. Well, it's also, <laughs> and I don't watch like the Bachelor or anything, but like we accidentally turned it on and like watched all of them. No, so, this
1: is, this happened to me too. I came home from the gym and my partner was watching it. He just started it and he's like just watch five minutes of this. I'm like, oh no, it's reality but TV. Like- it looks terrible. It's stupid. And like, I sat down like, fine, fine. And like, we ended up watching, we binge watched all the episodes that were available. I like, I had two glasses of wine and it became like a couple time because we were like, can you believe that guy? I can't believe it. Like it became like a whole social event. So because
0: no, I think that was my white white white. <laughs> that's, that's, that's That's good. That's positive. And it's not a black and white, ooh, a TV. TV is bad thing, right? But I think if you strategically say, this is a show that I like, this is a show that I'm going to save like, book off the time and participate in yes. one thing. Versus, okay, we just watched seven episodes of Storage Wars, <laughs> what yes. else is on? <laughs> and it's like very, very home, good. Home, <laughs> the eight different home renovation, remodeling, flipping shows that you get on HGTV, oh, and then yes. you realize your whole weekend, Like, and then you go to work on Monday morning
2: going, Oh well, I wasted the weekend, and you don't feel recharged. That's what I thought. That's a a good point. I think that you actually nailed it. I'm surprised because do you do that often? Because like, you only know if you know. (laughs) 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 You've done that because i Yeah,
1: yeah. I like to say in coaching that we smell our own shit.
2: So,
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of times, my day it starts. It's I'm not like a 5 a.m. 6 a.m. person, but get up, do the whole morning routine thing, go off to work, start start coaching clients at 9 or 10 a.m. or it's 9 a.m. podcasts on Thursdays. And then during the weekdays, except Fridays, I'm getting done work at 8 p.m. Uh, I may have gotten some breaks to write or do other work in between. Then it's workout. I'm going home at 10, 9.30, 10 o'clock. Maybe I'm going to bed at 11 or 12. If I have an hour to two hour window, and what I've noticed is if I pull out a book and I've read and I've done something that I feel fulfilled by, I feel like I had a good end to my day and I feel productive. If I turn around and realize, wait a second, I just wasted that last hour and a bit scrolling social media, I feel very unfulfilled and a lot less recharged. And I, mm-hmm. it's a very noticeable feeling for me. So mm-hmm. I hope everybody can kind of reflect on their own experience with this and just like, wait a second. You can watch store drawers if you want. It's
2: just, it, make sure you plan it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the takeaway. It, it wasn't an accident. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but I, I think it, like, and, For me, like balance is also a very dynamic entity, right? And I go back to the martial arts as the metaphor. Like most of the time in many martial arts, you are off balance. And it is the off balance-ness that actually gives you the energy, the momentum to go into some particular kind of move. So a lot of time you like deliberately off balance yourself or you're able to return to balance very effectively. So it's like, it's more like standing on a moving train a lot of the time. Um, And so like, I think what you're kind of getting at is how how much on autopilot are you uh, and how good at you are you at returning to your equilibrium, returning to your core values when you deviate. And I want to also vote in favor of being obsessive. I think to be great in a lot of fields, you have to be a little bit crazy and not all the time. So like it has to be in the proper proportions like anything else, but there's, there's times when I'm in the zone, I'm in the writing zone and I'm like, eating the most ridiculous things, if I am eating, like drinking coffee, like, you know, I'm in the zone. And that's also part of what makes my work joyful for me. So sometimes some people need to get out of balance in order to do their best work. But it's got to be kind of kept in in
0: proportion. We've been one of our best. This is great. Uh, well, you, you lived up to the hype, um, <laughs> really, really cool to, you
2: know, have to come on, um, you're not stupid. Is what is. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>
0: yes. Episode, yes. Uh, yes. And was, uh, our buddy, Raph, uh, had been talking to you and, and I, oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. you
0: know, you're, you're a dynamic presenter and you alluded to not being a tall human being, uh, but like this, this petite woman who. We'll just get everybody to shut up in the audience as you do, <laughs>
2: and uh, and present. So wh- where, where's the best place for our audience to find you? Like, where are you kind of putting your best work
1: workout? Uh, precisionnutrition.com I think is the easiest. Uh, we've been doing a lot of like I mean, on our blog, there's so much free stuff. We've been doing a lot of stuff recently on like, you know, very practical coaching things. We've had some really awesome articles come out, I think. And it's not just me, it's the whole team. Um, but yeah, the precisionnutrition.com, our blog. Like, just go there and download infographics and read all the free articles. I mean, there's juicy, meaty stuff. It's not like fluffy 100-word blog articles. Like, this is this is uh, deep stuff that's really you know like substantively helpful. Um, that's where I would start for sure. And Instagram,
0: because a lot of our people-
1: Instagram, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I used to do Twitter. I don't. I just don't anymore. But yeah, Instagram. You'll find me at Stumptuous. Uh, Facebook, because I'm old. <laughs> You'll find me on
2: Facebook. I still like Facebook. Yeah. Oh, well. and, and and on the what what martial art do you do? Again?
1: Um, I've done a bunch of them. Uh, boxing and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu have been the one I've stuck with most. Yeah.
2: I just wanted to get it straight because like we just literally talked about jujitsu. It was just like so funny, the parallels. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did judo for a number of years too, uh, poorly, but like, you know, yeah. So any kind of like anything that you do in pajamas with throwing people on the floor uh, or any kind of like wrestling or anything like that, I've,
2: I've done it. You can find find her then at the dojo. That's right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Thank you
0: again for your time. This is wonderful. Uh, I'll explicitly say you're welcome back. Anytime you deem yourself, Uh, full of ideas that you want to share with our universe then please (laughs) send me a message we'll make it happen immediately. Uh, And for all the listeners thanks for staying tuned with us all this time. If you're new uh, and you found this through PN and Krista uh, on their media then you know I hope you actually will stick around and check out some of the other things that we've done. If you scroll through our library of uh, guests you'll find a ton of industry elites and notable names and a lot of emerging up-and-comers who we want to put on your radar because we believe in them as great people. We've mentioned our friend, Jeb Johnston a lot this episode. It's just because there are so many parallels in the conversation and, uh, and Jeb is someone who is doing really great things that yet isn't um, a total household name. So you may want to check him out and we should have him coming up for you next week. So hopefully you subscribe if you haven't already and, uh, and stay tuned because we've got a lot more coming for you.
2: Thanks for coming out. Thanks guys. Thank you.